Hi everyone. Can I just encourage you this morning? I've obviously been involved in this site since we kicked it off a little while ago. And can I just encourage you that it was lovely to stand here this morning. Something's really horrible. It's not me. Uh, Yeah, it was lovely to stand here this morning and worship and sense you guys were right in there and you were really, not just really singing, it's not like singing louder is more holy, that's not my point, but you can tell when people are thoroughly engaged with Jesus and when there's a sense that it doesn't, you can tell it partly when this happens, that when It's all one thing to sing songs that are set for us. That's a great thing to do. It's also great to just sing. Like extemporary singing. I mean, we do extemporary prayer all the time, but we don't do that much extemporaneous singing. So to hear you singing and engaging in that way, I I just want to encourage you and say, not like, that's how you do it, but I want to encourage you because it's been a journey for us in this building. And so keep going, folks. It's exciting. We're in the middle of an abiding series uh, from John chapter 15, which we're going to read in a moment. Quick recap. Number one, Jesus said, I am the vine. Slow, but got there. And then he said, my father is the gardener. Now, gardener is an interesting word. It's it's an English translation of a Greek word in which the New Testament was originally written, meaning could just mean a farm or a vineyard owner. It could mean someone who works the ground. But in this context particularly, it means someone who tends a vine, someone who is a vine worker. Hence, some translations, the ESV, for example, says my father is the vine dresser. Quite right. What if I told you that following Jesus was going to hurt? Well, you might say, well, yeah, I know it's costly. Yes. But what if I told you as well that following Jesus is going to hurt? I'll explain as we go. This morning's title is Under the Gardener's Knife. We're going to read John chapter 15. I'm going to read the whole of verses 1 to 17. It's a long passage, but stay with me because it's great. I am the true vine. This is Jesus speaking. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. This is the verse we'll be looking at today. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or cleans. He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch. This verse is important for today too. You're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. The vine dresser, the gardener. Well, it's a picture from the Old Testament. God is the vine, the vineyard owner, and he tends his vines in the Old Testament. And Isaiah chapter 5 gives us an idea of what the vine dresser does, what this gardener does. It goes like this. My loved one, talking of God, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choicest vines, he built a watchtower, he built a vat, a place to store the wine. These are all things that are in the mind of Jesus as he's saying, my father is the gardener, he's the vine dresser. He got the ground ready, he got the stones out of the way. He actually also built a stone wall around it, enough hedge around it to protect it. He built a watchtower so that they could see over and see what was going on. They built a place to store the wine. It was a very involved task. And Jesus here mentions two other things that the vine dresser, the gardener, does. In verse 2, he says this. There are two distinct things. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You see, the Father is at work. I'm sure you know, if you're a Christian here today, you will know that. The Father is at work in your life. But it's true as well to say that Jesus is at work in our lives. Don't we say that sometimes? Is it the, well, hang on, is it the Father or is it the Son who's at work in our lives? And then, of course, Jesus frequently talks about the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. And you might, you could get a little bit confused and say, well, hang on, <laughs> could you just clarify for me which one is it? Well, it's not like that. You see, our faith is thoroughly Trinitarian. We're not Unitarians who simply believe there is one God, and Jesus is special but not God, for example, nor are we like tritheists. We don't believe in three gods. We are Trinitarian. That is absolutely fundamental to our faith. And so when we talk about God's work in our lives, it's right for us to say the Father is at work. He's at work this week in your life. It's also true to say the Son is at work. Jesus said, I will be with you till the end of the age. What's he with us for? He's working in us. He's comforting us. He's working. But it's also true that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. So you don't have to get confused and you don't have to worry too much. You see, the Trinity is a remarkable idea. Not an idea, truth. The Trinity is a slight slip there. The Trinity is a remarkable truth. 
They are separate enough that you can distinguish between them. And you can talk of the Father, as Jesus is doing here. You can talk of the Son, you can talk of the Spirit, but you can't separate them. They're so one that their work is one. And yet they are distinct. It is absolutely magnificent. The Trinity is a beautiful thing. But in verse 2, it's the Father that Jesus is referring to here. He's the gardener. Now, every gardener, anybody here love a bit of gardening? Yeah, yeah, well, Alan, now, Alan, if you, by the way, let me just have a word for Alan here. If you have any garden, in my experience, any horticultural questions at all, he is your man. All right? So, Alan, I wouldn't be surprised if you have a queue later. So don't rush out the door too quick. Alan seems to know everything. Every gardener knows that they have to do a lot of cutting. You have to cut the grass, you have to cut the trees, you have to cut the flowers, you have to cut the hedges, never mind pulling up the weeds as well. I hadn't thought of this until this week. Most gardening seems to be removal. (laughs) Have you ever thought that? Most gardening is removal. I had never actually clocked that until this week. It's a, and it's an ever-changing scene because the seasons are changing. And it's an ever-changing scene because the things you're dealing with are organic. They're living. They're alive. They're growing. And without cutting the grass, the trees, the hedges, the plants, pulling up the weeds, you'd end up with chaos. It would just be a complete and utter mess all over the place. The same goes for working on vines. They require a lot of cutting. But not every cut is the same. If you're an experienced... It's always good when you get a nod from the one who knows the most in the room. (laughs) A good gardener knows that not every cut is the same. And there are two types of cuts here in John 15. One cut removes unwanted, unfruitful growth. The other cut promotes growth for greater fruitfulness. They are different cuts. Now, cutting off and pruning both require a sharp knife. This is where, what if I told you that being a Christian is going to be painful, comes in. It requires a sharp knife. Or perhaps these days, a sharp pair of secateurs, or for the bigger bits, a pair of loppers. In my small amount of experience, and it is small, because I'll garden when I kind of, well, it's a, you have to. That's, to me, that's the time to garden. I don't know why you'd do it otherwise. In my small amount of experience, it seems to me that most plants are very resilient and survive the blade of the knife perfectly well. Though not my hedge. Now that is the cut, there's a lesson in this, that is the cut of an inexperienced gardener who didn't know that if you trim a hedge too close, it never grows back. And once you've made that mistake, you're stuck. The only solution, and I have pondered it, is getting some green spray paint. (laughs) Probably gloss. 
so it doesn't run away and just covering it again because there's no solution for that. But most plants, however, can be and in fact need to be cut severely and yet they will thrive. Try these. This purple plant, I have no idea what it is. What is it? It's a hydrangea, apparently. I know it's not a daffodil, and I know what you're like. <laughs> I wouldn't believe what you said anyway. This, this hydrangea, I hacked that back a few months ago. And somehow, it has not objected, but it has thrived. I now need to hack it back again, because it's covering my front window. Vines also to go back to John 15, are perfectly designed to be cut however severely and wisely and thrive. Let's look at both of these parts of being under the gardener's knife. Firstly, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Right. If anybody's getting a bit sleepy in the warmth today, please give yourself a shake because I need your brains for this bit. This is far more complicated than it may at first seem. Especially when we read this part of verse 2, which says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, with verse 6, which seems to be connected and follow from verse 2. Verse 6 says this, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. You've got to ask yourself, who are these branches? You should have asked yourself, who are these branches? It's a really important question. Because that action of the gardener in cutting away these branches must make us wonder, what's he doing there? What does it mean that he's cutting away branches in him? There are three options. I'm going to tell you which one I think is the most likely. There are three options. Who are these branches, given that they are said to be in the vine, but they bear no fruit, and connected to verse 6, they seem to then be thrown into the fire and got rid of. Well, they could be, it could be, number one, they were disciples. These were disciples, they failed to remain in Jesus, and so they drifted away for him and were chucked away to be cut off and picked up and thrown away and burned, which is Jesus' language for everlasting punishment. The conclusion there would be that these were disciples, but they've lost their salvation, and so they're being thrown away to eternal punishment. I hope you've spotted a flaw in that. I really hope you have. There's a huge flaw in that. That would be contrary to Jesus' teaching. For example, John 10, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Plus the general teaching in the New Testament of assurance of salvation. If you haven't got assurance of salvation, you're in a really bad state. How do you go to bed every night and know, Lord, if I don't wake up tomorrow morning, I'm fine with you? No, I don't think that works. That They were disciples. They've lost it. They've been thrown away and lost their salvation. Secondly, they are disciples. 
Support for that view is based on the fact that these branches, he says, are in me. These are branches that were in me. So these would be disciples who belong to him from whom the Father is cutting out bits that are unfruitful and chucking those bits away. Not the whole disciple, but those bits. However, verse 6 goes on to say that if you do not remain in me, note in me again, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Which again, as I've already said, seems like in Jesus' language, he uses elsewhere to speak of eternal judgment. That's a problematic conclusion from that verse some of you are a little bit lost let me just tell you what I think is going on about though I want to give you just honest to give you the views that they only appeared to be disciples that is what most commentators would say that's my view having thought about it and looked at it on balance I think this view has more in its favor who is it that are being cut out and thrown away It's those who never were his disciples. It's those who are going to eternal punishment, not the Christian who's now in fear of his assurance. They would be nominal believers who never truly put their trust in Jesus in the first place. Those whose fruitless lives, you see, they they bore no fruit, yes? Those who bears no fruit. Does a Christian bear no fruit? No, that's nonsense. That's impossible. They're those who bore no fruit. They are not those who ever really had the life of the vine throwing through them. And it could be a reference to Judas, who just before has left to go and betray Jesus. Hence, in verse 3, Jesus says, but you're clean. In other words, not like him. Now, the issue with this view is that these are branches who are said to be in me. I've already mentioned that. And elsewhere in John, that phrase, in me, almost exclusively is positively used for those who are belonging to Jesus. But here's what most people will say to try and work out how's this working. You see, there were many who hung around Jesus who ultimately were not shown to belong to him. They kind of appeared to be in him. They were in the crowd around him, but not actually rooted and connected to the vine properly. In me, therefore, wouldn't necessarily mean a living part of me. So take, for example, John chapter 6. I hope you're with me, just about. It's really important not to just gloss over this and say, oh, never mind. It does matter. That's what studying the Bible means. These are Jesus' words. They matter. John chapter 6 You've got this situation. On hearing what Jesus was saying in Capernaum, many of his disciples, listen, please listen really carefully. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And then down in verse 66, from this time, listen, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Who does he mean? He doesn't mean the 12, does he? 
even at that time, Judas hasn't turned back, turned, turned away. What he means is those who are hanging around him. Disciples was a broad word. It could mean one of the 12. It could mean there's a whole gang of people. As you know, crowds followed him. They were his disciples. They were sort of going after him, learning from him. They were listening to his teaching. It doesn't mean they were in the vine. John chapter 8, another example. Goes like this. Verse 31, John chapter 8. Listen again. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Go on a few verses and you get this. Jesus, listen, it's hilarious. You should really laugh a lot when you read the Bible. It's almost a comic, it's not a comic, but it's almost comical at times. To the Jews, did you hear what I said? To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, A few minutes later, you belong to your father, the devil. Sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? I thought they were believing in him. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. And then right at the end, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am, which is an enormous statement. At this... Note, the Jews who had believed in him, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself and slipped out. What was that belief? What were those disciples in chapter 6? They were those who were hanging around. Yeah, I believe, I quite like what he's saying. I I could kind of go for this guy. But then there comes a moment when in chapter 6, it's hard teaching. I can't cope with this. I'm off comes again in chapter 8 to the Jews who believed him. They can't cope with what he's saying. And in fact, he's confronted them. Your father's the devil. And they want to stone him. Matthew chapter 7 famously says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, I will accept. I'll say, I didn't know you at all. If you're only hanging around Jesus, this is a really sobering message. You know, there are lots of people who hang around the church and hang around Jesus and yet don't have saving faith. Let me please plead with you. If you're hanging around the church and not really trusting in Jesus, you really need to get connected in with him and trust him alone for your salvation and obey his every word. Otherwise, you will be a branch that was kind of in him, but gets ultimately chucked out. For all who are Christians and in the vine, secondly, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. That's encouraging. In the terms of this metaphor... God loves his branches. God loves his branches. He loves his children, to use another metaphor. He loves his people. He loves his branches. Do you know that? Please tell me you know that. He loves you. If you're one of his branches, he really properly loves you. He knows everything about you. And he loves you. You couldn't be more secure. 
But there's also a very real sense, to use this metaphor, in which a vine and its branches are utilitarian. They exist to be productive. They exist to be useful. You have to hold hold that together. He loves you. There's a sense in which vines and branches are utilitarian. They're there to be productive. They're there to be useful. They don't primarily exist for their beauty. Vines are not not unattractive, but they don't get put up because they're attractive. They exist for more than simply to be looked at as some trees or flowers might be. Here are some beautiful examples from my well-tended, loved garden. This thing on the top left, what's, I have no idea. Is that, anyone know what that is? Oh, right, yeah. A hebe. And that's a GB. A hebe and a something orange down there. I know what that one on the right is. It's a palm tree. <laughs> hebe, a BB, and a BG. It's a palm tree. Those, I know, now I know, I know those have purposes, like bees come along and get the stuff, pollen, and fly, fly away with it and drop it somewhere or rub up against something else and fertilize things. I know they've got a kind of purpose, but basically I think they exist to just to look nice. You can't say that of a vine. A vine is there for a purpose. And the gardener, the vine dresser, in this metaphor, is after a greater yield. It's an important part of this metaphor. He's after a greater yield, which is stated again later on. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory. That's the real point, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Verse 16, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. And in the context of a carer of vines, he prunes for fruitfulness. He prunes means to carefully, skillfully remove excess or unproductive growth in order to maximize the desired outcome. And in the case of vines, the desired outcome is both quality and quantity of grape. So the father has a purpose. He loves you completely and utterly. All right? If you never did anything else in this life, he'd love you the same. Isn't that great news? There is a sense, to use Jesus' words here, that as long as you are alive, he loves you completely, perfectly. Without anything that you do good to make him love you more, that he also is after fruitfulness. Because he rightfully is seeking glory, because he is the great object in the universe. Now, a vine grower in Oregon, which I, you know, fair enough, is not in the Middle East, but it's still pretty hot, said pruning, a vine grower there said, pruning is the single most important job you can do in a vineyard. Not fertilizing, watering, I guess, but pruning is the single most important job you can do in a vineyard. Someone else, it's integral to the quality of the grapes. Now, have you ever seen anybody pruning severely? It looks cruel. If you were to go to a vine, a vineyard, after pruning time, 
you would think a massacre had just happened. Bits all over the ground. It looks like it's in pieces. The people have just happily been cutting away. And now they've left it all on the ground. There's much less left than there was in the first place. But every cut of a wise gardener is careful and stimulates growth. It's not just to make it smaller, tidier. It's to stimulate growth. Pruning causes the branch to draw on the vine like never before. But you wouldn't just get your hedge trimmer out and cut indiscriminately. Well, I did with my hedge, but you, you wouldn't. Now I wouldn't. Pruning is a very skillful, discerning task. One writer said this, sometimes the tip was pinched off so the shoot would grow more slowly. Interesting. Larger branches, they said, were topped to prevent them from becoming too long and weak. Unwanted flower or grape clusters were thinned out. You could also say that the skilled, experienced gardener knows exactly what to do in each situation to maximize the crop, even sometimes delaying production for greater yield. There's a, after I spoke last Sunday at the Bournemouth site, uh, Mike Wilson, who's one of our members, he came up to me, he said, I grow vines in my garden. I'd forgotten, but he does, I've seen them. He grows vines in his garden. And he said to me, he said, I'm just going to tell you a few things about vine growing. Not that I got anything wrong, which I was very pleased to hear. But he added these things. He said, you have to remove small bunches of grapes to allow the bigger bunches to get even bigger. I hope you're making the connection with all this and our father, the gardener. You have to remove small bunches of grapes so that the bigger ones can get even bigger. He said, you have to remove very leafy branches. Now, that might look really fruitful. I've got a vine with loads of leaves on it. But he said, you're growing grapes, not leaves. It's not just growth in itself that you're after. So it's not that the gardener uses his knife to prune, because these are unfruitful branches but because he knows they can be even more fruitful. God, why are you doing this and restricting me? I seem to be bearing no fruit. Do you know what he's doing? He's at work because there's hope for you. He sees potential in you. There is more to be gained. Pruning is painful, but it's a sign of hope and have confidence so that the branch will be even more fruitful. The tricky bit for you and I in practice is the pain. No? The pain. The removal. The gardener's long-term perspective, which we struggle to get sometimes. I'd much prefer that his desire for more fruit came about quickly through only pleasant interventions. I wish he'd put his knife away. A bit more fertilizer, I'd prefer. A bit more watering. 
Just put your knife away. It's painful. Things like new exciting opportunities. Sure, thank you. Surely that would be nicer for my fruitfulness. Success, applause, encouragement, plain sailing where my strengths just become stronger. We might even be tempted to believe that God's job is to make our lives easier. Don't tell me you've never thought that. But we just know that's not how it works. So how does it work? What does pruning look like in our lives? Let me, there are a bunch of things. I'm just going to give you three very quickly. God prunes through challenging situations. I wish it wasn't, didn't you? He prunes through challenging situations. You know Galatians chapter 5, everyone loves it. I love it, it's great. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In contrast to the works of the flesh, the fruit of the flesh. Yeah? Let me ask you, when do those things grow? You've got to say, Lord, will you please just make me more patient? And we have this funny, strange idea that the Lord is just going to add a dollop of patience and I will just be more patient. And let's be honest, don't you wish that was how it worked? Lord, make me more gentle. Just as two examples, make me more joyful. Let me ask you, where, do the, where can those things only take place and grow? When you're challenged, when there's a temptation to be grumpy instead of joyful, when there's a temptation to be impatient rather than patient, when there's a temptation to be rough rather than gentle, it's in those situations that perhaps, rather than just thinking life's really tough at the minute and get grumpy about it, maybe the switch of thinking is, Lord, are you pruning me? Help me to learn. Help me to pay attention. That doesn't make it nice and easy. It doesn't make it any more pleasant, but it might make it more purposeful. Maybe he's allowing in his sovereign goodness, allowing stuff that is challenging so that you might be more fruitful. You think I'm being less. His purpose is more. Another example God disciplines when, sorry, God prunes when he disciplines. Hebrews chapter 12 seems to have some resonation with this passage. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline, the writer says. Don't you know? Anyone who's a son gets disciplined. In fact, it's proof of sonship. It's one of the proofs of sonship that God disciplines those he loves. Those who are his sons. You know that passage? Well, it goes on and finishes like this. Interestingly, verse 11, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. <laughs> yes. Later on, however, it produces a harvest. The NIV translation is a pain at times. It's a pain here. That's the same word, carpon, as is used for fruit in John 15. No discipline is pleasant at the time. It's painful. But later on, it produces the fruit of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. 
Is the Lord disciplining? Don't run away. It's because he loves you. It's because you're his son. It's part of the proof of sonship that he'll discipline those he loves and who are his. Some Christians like to blame the devil every time things are going wrong or things are getting difficult. Let me tell you, yes, sometimes that will be the case. Let me tell you, it can be a cop-out. It's much easier to blame something, someone, than it is to embrace discipline. Next time you feel the Lord's discipline, perhaps... He's doing it for greater fruitfulness, however painful it may feel. God prunes, thirdly, through conviction. Psalm 51, verse 2. Psalm 51 is the famous psalm of David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba. Verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse in the Septuagint. You have to ask me later if you want to. The Greek translation of the New Testament, of the Old Testament. Cleanse there is the same root word as here, as prune and cleanse in this passage. God prunes through conviction. When he puts the spot on your life, sorry, I'm just going to point at you. I'm not, it's not a word of knowledge. Puts his finger on you and he says that, that thing. And it's never condemnation, remember, it's conviction, if you're a Christian. It's conviction of sin. And he will convict, as part of his discipline, I suppose, he'll convict for greater fruitfulness. So that you can get rid of being plugged into that rubbish vine and get plugged back in again to him. I saw an, a, a great example of this last time I was at Zach and Sarah's. We catch up about once a month to talk about how this site's going because there's a site leaders here. And it was hilarious. <laughs> Zach, this is a family. <laughs> well, no, this, was this was fantastic. Zach was sitting there with a great big spot on his leg. No, bite, not a spot, a bite on his, on his leg right about here, okay? And he had some cream, and he was wanting to get the cream. He was rubbing cream into it and hoping that would sort it out. Sarah sees it, and it's like she just woke up and lit up. <laughs> and she got this, well, what is it, a plunger thing? A little... <laughs> She got this little mini plunger about this long. And it looks like a syringe, but it doesn't have a needle. It's got like a, a sucker at the end. And so she was, you should have seen the glee in her face. She was loving it. She put this thing on Zach's leg. And you plunge it, and then you draw it up. And the pain Zach was in. Seriously, you were suffering, weren't you? Horsefly bites. So it's meant to suck the venom out. And so she put it on there, plunge it, and then you leave it. You don't just take it off, you leave it. So it's like sitting there for a few minutes with this plunger on his leg in lots of pain. And then she takes it off and she does it again. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, you are. <laughs> and so if you ever see Sarah with a little mini plunger, run. And she does it a third time. She's pulling this. She's drawing this poison out of him. Well, you could say that's what conviction of sin is. Sorry, again. He's putting this 
finger oil to change the image from pruning to plunging. He's plunging. He's saying, there's this. Let's get that out of you. Why? Not just to make you holy, but so that you can stay in the vine and be fruitful for his glory. Tim Keller said this of pruning. This was helpful, of pruning. The educated eye sees this. There is nothing cut off that was not a gain to lose and would have been a loss to keep. There is nothing cut off that was not a gain to lose and would have been a loss to keep. I want you to know this. I want you to know God loves you completely. If you're not a Christian, get into his love completely. If you're a Christian, he loves you completely. But he is seeking fruitfulness for his glory. And so he will be at work. And I want to suggest that the next time you hit a challenge, you wonder, Lord, what are you trying to do here? Next time you feel his discipline or his conviction, Lord, what is it you're trying to prune here and embrace his work rather than fighting it and just waiting for an easier day as Christians are prone to do? Maybe you'd just like to stand if you can. Let's just close our eyes, shall we? And my-